Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to God is Gray, the podcast. Although I, as a Christian, believe that God resides in absolute truth, in black and white, we as people are stuck here on planet Earth contending with the gray. In church, gray areas often cause dissension, anger, and even hate. But on this platform, I welcome open dialogue, variety of opinion, and differing belief systems. God is Gray is meant to teach, inform, and simply trade stories with kindness, love, and mutual respect. If you have a story or perspective to share, please reach me, Brenda Marie Davies, at GodIsGrayXO at gmail.com. To support the cause and be a part of our community, donate to patreon.com slash gray. Now, on to the episode. We have the incredible Mama Dr. Jones. She is a board-certified OBGYN, an online educator who has amassed a following of over 1 million across platforms. She is an expert in periods, pregnancy, and gynecologic health, and is passionate about science, education, autonomy, and patient-centered care. She's been featured in the New York Times on the cover of People Health and is frequently featured as an expert by various news and media outlets. Hello. <laughs> I'm like, Hi. what do I call you? Do I call you doctor? I want to give you Danielle is fine. <laughs> Dr. Danielle. That, that bio made me sound great. It's almost like my team wrote it. <laughs> I hate writing my own bios because you have to like brag on yourself and you're like, I don't know, I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, but well, you, I'm yeah. so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm so I'm so impressed because for everyone who wasn't for our pre-conversation right before we started recording, um, Danielle was just saying how she is a mother of four and she still is currently working while maintaining this YouTube channel. So I think my greatest curiosity is like, is this just an incredible passion for education? What is driving you to be the, the person that you are outputting all of this amazing work? You know, it, it started innocently enough when I was on maternity leave with my fourth baby and I was just kind of fed up with Instagram because I was doing all these great live conversations, but at the time Instagram didn't have IGTV and so they'd just go away in 24 hours. And mm. that was a, a little over two years ago now. And I was like, I'm just going to start putting stuff on YouTube, but being very type A like I am, I needed to do whatever I was going to do. I was going to do it well. So I spent most of my maternity leave listening to podcasts about how to start a YouTube channel. And I just really love it. I mean, it's such a great place to educate my patients when I don't get nearly enough time in clinic to really sit down with people and talk to them for an hour. Like I would like to, I can at least direct them, you know, to my PCOS video, or if they have questions about HPV vaccine, I can direct them there. So it kind of serves a purpose of filling that need for me to educate a little more thoroughly. And then now it's just kind of, I mean, it's fun and I have a community there and I enjoy it. That's awesome. Really quickly, do you, have you noticed any changes with the, the censorship and bans being a sex educator? Cause I, I'm so concerned about all my sex educator friends cause you are so desperately needed because when you go away, all we have is Pornhub and, <laughs> and you're being censored and I hate it. So has that had an effect yeah. in your work? Uh, early on, it was a pain in the rear. I, I could not get a video to stay monetized, which it's not even necessarily like the money part. It's that those views get suppressed as well when they're not yeah. monetized. And so anytime I said vagina, it would be demonetized. And until about six months ago, I didn't have like anyone at YouTube that I could ask for help from. And so my channel had grown to over 500,000 subscribers and I was still getting demonetized all of the time and suppressed views all of the time. And so now that I have some connections within YouTube and they've kind of put in this system where you can self-rate your content and if you do a good job of it, then they tend to not demonetize you. Um, it's been much better, but I worry a lot about the smaller creators because a lot of the sex ed creators are small creators and they don't have those connections. And so I agree it's concerning. And I I've been working with YouTube directly to hopefully make an impact in how they do this. Oh, that makes me really happy because sometimes I just want to tell everybody that I hate YouTube and I'm like, no, no, there, there, I know there's good people in there. I think there's just a grave misunderstanding about what is appropriate and what our intentions are as like the educators that we are. Cause I talk about toxic religion and that gets very dark and heavy real quick, but to not let people have access to it is just, 
a mess. People need yeah, it. Yeah, I agree so, for sure. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, so I just did a little field of questions on Instagram and I was just like, what do you guys want me to ask Mama Dr. Jones? And I'm sad to say it, but I'm happy you're here to talk about it. But the, the most asked question was, why does sex hurt? Why am I in pain? And why can't I feel good in this situation, whether it be from fear or shame or just generally not feeling good in sexual situations? So I guess, I mean, I'm really excited to get educated as well because I don't exactly know the differences between, for example, vaginismus, vaginismus and endometriosis. So maybe we can clarify the different things that can bring pain into sex. And then we can kind of conquer the beast of, okay, so how do we alleviate this pain and bring forth some pleasure? Yeah, that's a, I mean, this is a massive topic. And obviously for every person asking this question, it's going to be a little bit different because the answer ranges from things like infections, yeast infection, bacterial infection, STIs, all of those things can cause pain with intercourse. But then we also have the less infectious type things like vaginismus and endometriosis and just general discomfort due to less lubrication. And so when I have a patient in my office who is bringing this up, it's helpful for me to know a little bit about their background. And I know you see a lot of your followers are kind of people who are recovering from toxic purity culture. And I, I'm sure that some of my listeners who maybe are less familiar with you are going to happen upon this podcast. And I, I want to say that toxic purity culture, when we reference it, and correct me if I'm wrong, is not the same thing as people who choose to abstain from sex until marriage. Toxic yeah. purity culture is this culture of telling specifically women, I mean, men get brought into it somewhat, but mm -hmm. overwhelmingly, this is girls, young girls, who are told you are dirty or something is wrong with you if you have sex before marriage. And this creates kind of a feedback loop of, I have these normal thoughts, I'm growing, my hormones are changing, I have normal sexual development going on, but I start feeling guilty about that from a very young age. So that first initial sexual thought triggers that loop to start when someone's been raised to understand that as not an okay thing. Yeah. And so if someone is raised in a culture like this, I we always want to rule out the infectious stuff. And a good way to do that if someone is like not sure if they should come in for testing is, is this a new thing or has this been going on basically your entire sexual life? So, you know, that's kind of the first way to break it down. I think number one in this is having a good relationship with a gynecologist, which is hard that's if you're so raising that hard. culture. Yeah. And also you don't really, and not a, none of us really have healthcare guaranteed either. So if you go yeah. to Planned Parenthood, you're just getting whoever happens to be there in that moment. Yeah. Um, and, you know, yeah. Planned Parenthood is, is really good too for general things, but a lot of times as they would love to provide more in-depth care, but most of them have been defunded to the point that they can't. Yeah. Um, and what was your experience growing up with like being told to go to a gynecologist or like what was your understanding of what happened or when you needed to start seeing a gynecologist? Um, yeah, so you've got me really thinking about my history because I'm remembering that when I was, I think I got my period when I was about 14 or 15. So I was a late bloomer in that way. I remember just like agonizing, waiting, like, when am I going to be a woman? <laughs> you know, so jealous of everybody else. Um, and then when it finally came, my friends and I were in the bathroom and they were trying to tell me how to put a tampon in. And I was trying to put it in and I could not do it. And they're all like, is it the right hole? And I'm like, I think so. Like, I, I don't know what I'm doing. And my parents were so awkward about the subject of sex. I'm sure they're sorry about it now, but it was just like bodies tensed up and everybody is scared. And that wasn't even religiously based. They were like, ex-hippies coming off the sexual revolution and they had their own past each of them but it, I think it was just a product of the times like piss poor sex education in our country for generations and then the parents are supposed to have this great grasp and be able to be the only ones providing us that education because lord knows schools are not doing it so it's just like this 
this beast that it becomes. So God bless the parents, not mad at them, but I could not, I could not go to my mom and be like, is this the right hole? What am I doing? Um, and it took a while, but I think I did end up expressing to her that I was having some issues and I was interested in using tampons because that was the cool thing to do. And, um, but I couldn't do it. So we went to the gynecologist and you will know the name of this, I guess. I forget. I had such a tight hymen that it was like unbreakable. And the doctor told me that, and I was saving myself for marriage, quote unquote, at the time. And yeah, she was just like, okay, well, when you find that person you want to have sex with, he's either going to have to like put him, his hands inside of you and rip it by hand. And you'll have to recover for a moment, or we can put you under and we can do it ourselves. And I was like, B. <laughs> so I forget what that's called, but that was my experience with it. And then by the time someone finally did, I did make out with someone and, and get uh, digitally pleasured for the first time, it was very painful and it didn't feel good. And I was kind of just waiting for years and years for my body to start getting used to this being a pleasurable feeling. So that was just my personal experience with it. Yeah. So what you're talking about is hymens come in all shapes and sizes. And I think people have this idea that like a hymen is a hymen is a hymen. And that's not necessarily <laughs> true. I mean, some people have just um, barely a remnant and the function of the hymen theoretically is just to keep any debris and basically bowel movements out of the vagina when you're an infant. And really past that point, there's no physiologic function to it, which is why most people, by the time they're sexually active, don't have like this popping your cherry thing go on because it's, it, it's, it's just this weird myth that people came up with to make women feel bad. And mm -hmm. the hymen can sometimes be completely absent by the time you are sexually active. It can be just kind of what we call cribiform where there's just teeny tiny little holes in it. And then if you have one that's almost like completely blocking off the vaginal exit, except for a point where blood can come out, then sometimes that can include what you called or what you're referencing, which is probably a hymenectomy, which is a really yes. simple <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, surgical procedure to basically disrupt the hymen so that you don't have to do that traumatically. Because for most people, it shouldn't be traumatic and painful. And most people won't even know the point where that happened. Um, can I ask you though, too, is the scenario, this fictional scenario she gave me or hypothetical rather of like a guy actually having to put his hands in there and rip it? Like, how does it happen for women when they do have the same experience as me? And how do you recognize that this is what is happening? Yeah, sometimes, I mean, the first clue for most people is that they try to use a tampon just like you're describing and it doesn't work and then they come and see us, which is what I would prefer. But for people who have that experience during sex, a lot of times it is just a traumatic, I mean, the hymen is a very like thin tissue. And so most of the time it bleeds a lot because of where it's located and it's a very vascular area, but it generally doesn't have to be repaired or anything to stop the bleeding. But I mean, a lot of people just have a very traumatic first experience with sex if they have that and then they don't recognize it before. Mm. Um, but I will say it's pretty rare to have such an intact hymen that it causes what we're talking about now. So I don't want people yeah, mine was like, younger listeners yeah. <laughs> to be terrified because that's unusual. But I think yeah. everybody should try to use a tampon at least once. And if they have a problem, bring it up with their doctor so that we can make sure, you know, where we're at. Yeah. Okay, great. Yeah. So I think I'm most interested in empowering everyone with information that we do not have. First of all, please, everyone go follow Mama Dr. Jones on YouTube because she has so many, so many amazing videos on just straight up sex education that will really let you know what's going on. But in the hypothetical that we are talking about, which is the reality for many of my audience, many people, is that um, we are feeling like we're not allowed to have pleasure, but it's selfish to masturbate. That is something you're to be saving for your husband. Um, obviously, there's no education around um, same-sex sexuality or what that might be like. So if we're talking about pain, what are kind of the steps someone can take to really feel empowered 
to get on the process of finding pleasure because I don't know if you agree with this, but I feel like we should see everything as a journey. So it's not like I'm irreparably broken because I'm having painful sex right now. It's like there is a way out of this. There is hope. There is something that we can do. So let's say initially um, someone is just having sex in the beginning of a sexual relationship or whatever, or at any point, and it's just painful. It just is either hitting the wrong way. I feel like a lot of people experience that where it's just like their partner is in a lot of pleasure, but they're in a lot of pain, even like crampy kind of feelings um, all the way up until like, I mean, I've heard stories of it feeling like it's like daggers inside of you when it's as extreme as you have vaginismus. So mm -hmm. yeah, what is a step to like recognizing the issue and then empowering yourself to start moving forward out of that into pleasure. I think that it's important to kind of split these up into two groups. And one of those is I'm just incapable of seeing sex as pleasurable. Like it doesn't hurt, but I don't like it. Like I could take it or leave it, which is okay. Like if it's not bothering you, there are people mm -hmm. who are asexual and they don't have any interest in sex and that's totally fine. But then the problem with that is if it's bothering you, if you're like, I would like to enjoy sex, it would be nice to have this relationship with my partner, but I can't because of something going on up here. And that point, I think the best thing that you can do is, is cognitive behavioral therapy or discussions with a sex therapist, because that is something that really almost always goes back to something about how you were raised, whether that's the culture that you were raised in or just like this 90s true love weights thing that a lot mm. of us experienced yes. or if you have some kind of sexual trauma or abuse in your past that you need to work through so that's kind of the sex isn't pleasurable and i want it to be group now if sex is painful there's a whole bunch of different things that go into this so you're mentioning one of the more common things that i see especially within people who were raised in purity culture and that is vaginismus this is basically where you have extreme pain with penetration. And it, it, if someone can get past that, a lot of times the pain will decrease, but not always. But a lot of times it's so significant that it's not even worth trying to get past that. Because like I was talking about earlier with like the feedback loop of, of feeling sexual feelings, vaginismus is a feedback loop as well. Your body has been trained either from the culture you were raised in or a history of painful sex. Sometimes people who have really severe infections or uh, some kind of trauma or sexual abuse trauma will, will end up with vaginismus. And it's your body's response to fear, essentially. Mm. And your body's trying to protect you. You have at some point had a subconscious relationship in your head of fear and pain with vaginal penetration. Mm. And the way that we get over that, in addition to hopefully some therapy if there's an abuse history going on is to use, I like to use like a lidocaine jelly and vaginal dilators and always, always, always recommend my patients see a pelvic floor physical therapist. Vaginal dilators are essentially pelvic floor physical therapy. And then we have therapists who train in physical therapy and then do additional training just in the pelvic floor who can really make a difference in this. Vaginismus is always treatable, but it is one of the least attended things I see in gynecology. I get people in my office who've seen four doctors and nobody figured out what was going on. And it is wow. so easy to diagnose and it's always treatable. So find someone who will take your concerns seriously. From your experience, why the hell is that is that so under recognized and and do you see a shift at all in the medical practice where people are becoming more aware that this is an issue that that is need, needs to be addressed i don't know i you know i saw it once in medical school and many many times in training and i got very good training in it and so it was actually quite shocking to me when I got into practice and realized how many people weren't getting treated for it because I felt like it was such an easy thing to identify and treat. Wow. And so I, I can't answer the why part of that, but I, I can say, you know, if you find a doctor who's not taking you seriously, maybe try finding someone who's more recently out of training because it could be a generational thing that doctors just 
didn't recognize it as much even a decade ago. And now people are getting better training in it. I'm not 100% sure, but you can also advocate for yourself if you, if you think that's what's going on. And, you know, again, the key with this is pain with penetration, where it basically feels like they're hitting a brick wall and can't get in because it's a muscle spasm. It's basically a muscle spasm that closes off the vaginal opening. So you can advocate for yourself and tell your doctor, you know, I think that this might be what's going on. I heard some gynecologist talking about it on a YouTube podcast <laughs> and crazy lady. I want you to check it out. She said, I need vaginal dilators, lubrication, and a pelvic floor physical therapist. <laughs> there you go. Perfect. I mean, I think the most beautiful thing you said is that it is always treatable. I mean, thank God, like it, it must be so empowering to know that there's a way out of that. Can you explain to a vaginal dilator, is it like they come in like different sizes and you move up in size? Like how does that actually work? Yeah, it, it's exactly that. And you can actually get them on Amazon. I often have my patients just buy them off of Amazon because they're much cheaper than getting them from like a medical supply store. Okay. And they basically just look like little cylinders and they start with smaller than finger size for people who have very severe vaginismus and they move up to bigger sizes, whatever size that you need to size up to. And I always tell my patients, although it's always treatable, it does require a commitment on your end. You have to want to get better because it takes therapy at home, as well as potentially seeing the pelvic floor physical therapist, you have to do ongoing treatment. And then once you get to the point where you can comfortably have penetrative intercourse, if that's what your goal is, or, you know, if your goal is just using a tampon, once you get to the point of being able to use a tampon, then you have to maintain that laxity in the muscles with ongoing therapy or with intercourse if that is kind of what you've been working towards because it can recur and the times we see recurrence are either when someone has gone a long period of time without either doing the therapy or having sex or when you have had like another setback from say you get a really bad yeast infection and they can cause bad cramping and stinging and burning and then your body goes oh my god i remember this is painful mm. nothing should go in here and it can kind of reset so it, it can sometimes be a lifelong issue but it always can get better it just takes time and a commitment to working towards it and when i say you have to want to get better i don't mean like in your brain i just mean you have to be committed to doing the, the therapy yeah because it's like an actual practice of it um, can you differentiate then what is endometriosis? Endometriosis is a very complex disease and it often goes undiagnosed. One of the primary um, complaints people will have with this is pelvic pain, although it's not always just a pelvic disorder. Uh, traditionally was recognized as a pelvic disorder, but endometriosis is very strange. Sometimes we find endometriosis tissue in really weird places like the lungs and the brain. It's, it's quite crazy. Really? Yes. And so wow. that's how we know it's not just a pelvic disorder, but the primary complaints tend to be pelvic. And these patients sometimes will present with pelvic pain and sometimes will present with very severe pelvic pain. They often will have pain that happens with intercourse, with bowel movements, things like that. And mm. other times they will present with infertility or an ovarian cyst, and then you will discover it. The difficult thing about endometriosis is that we can really only definitively diagnose it on surgical inspection of the pelvis with a biopsy. And so oh. this is why it's often so frustrating that, you know, we're kind of I don't want to go to surgery. That sounds, you know, excessive, but at the same time, patients want answers and we need to help them. And so it's a complex disease with complex diagnosis and treatment. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's extremely frustrating for the people who have it because they often feel like nobody's listening to them. Wow. Okay. So would you say that it's like, uh, vaginismus is more of like, um, your brain and your body basically keeping account of things that have caused you pain in the past and reacting out of that. And then endometriosis is actually more of a purely physical thing. That's not about like your mentality with sex. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. It's, okay. And I do want to note there are, I've had patients who have vaginismus who swear I've never had painful sex. I've never been abused. I grew up in a very open family. So we don't know enough about it to say that's always it. It just, it does have a very high association. And vaginismus can pretty easily be diagnosed on physical exam in the office. You know, if I have a patient who I barely touch their perineum and I can tell their muscles tighten up, I can do a, a digital exam if they are okay with that and feel those muscles reacting that way. 
endometriosis is, is much more difficult to diagnose um, a lot of times. Okay, cool. Thank you for all of that. Can you give us a little tutorial about our vulvas in general? Because I think if I could encourage anyone to do anything, it would be to get your little hand mirror and take a peek, which is something that I didn't even do until I was like 29 years old or something. And then it wasn't until I had a certain partner that was kind of explaining why I was in certain pleasures and like what he was actually doing that I started understanding the mechanics of what's going on down there. So, um, and this I think could be helpful for anyone that's interested in exploring same sex relationships with a woman too, because if I were to have to like pleasure a woman, I would honestly be completely, I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think and ourselves really, first, you know, exactly. Yeah. This is really key and something I talk with a lot of my patients about too, is that it, I don't know how we got to a point where pleasuring yourself was such a kind of taboo thing in our culture, but I think it's extremely important that you know what makes you feel good so that you never accept a partner who says, well, I just don't know how, because then you can tell them. And if they're not willing to, you know, make that a two-way street, then they're probably not the right sexual partner for you. Um, so at the biggest thing here, and I see this a lot online too, is that labias look very different for everybody. And that's okay. Nobody yeah. has to, I mean, just like our faces look different, our vulvas can look different. And so I see a lot of plastic surgeons online talking about labiaplasty and things like this. And if your only exposure to labia has been through porn or TV, then you may not know that labiaplastic labiaplasty is probably only indicated if you have such a problem with your labia that it causes you physical discomfort or pain, you can't ride a bike, things like that. So please don't feel like you look weird because everybody's vulva is different. Yeah. <clears throat> Aside like from that. snowflakes. <laughs> exactly. And I've never met a sexual partner who has been like, oh, Nope, not because of the vulva looking like that. Like your sexual partner doesn't care. They're not there to just stare at your vulva, right? Like you're, you're in this together and it should be a very consenting, happy relationship where that's not on anybody's mind. I've honestly never come across a sexual partner who was concerned with that. No, I mean, neither. And that, it's also color too, like the color variations and stuff. I feel like people absolutely. get insecure. I went to a dermatologist once and he offered me like cream to make my entire vulva the same color. And I was like, <laughs> I just came here for you to check my Hard moles pass. for cancer. Thank you very much. Like, yes. But even the fact that that's on people's brains to be like, it sounds very porn based, that desire to be like, I need one flat line color and it needs to like, nothing is coming out. It's just all like tucked inside and it looks perfect, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you have kind of the labia majora and labia minora, which are essentially the lips that cover the vaginal opening. And a lot of people, I know probably people who listen to your shows know, but a lot of people that come through my clinic, especially very young people, don't understand that you don't pee from the same place as you have a baby from. And uh -huh. so you can't see the urethra where urine comes out just looking from the outside. It's hidden inside the labia. So the clitoral hood and the clitoris and then the urethra is just underneath that inside the labia. And then there's kind of a little space between there and then the vaginal opening, which we call the vaginal introitus. And then you have a little more space, which is the perineum and then the anus at the bottom. And I think even, I have ran about this all the time on my channel, but I think sex ed needs to start in kindergarten yes. with normal body parts. And it doesn't have to be a big thing. You just have a section in your book each time where you name the body parts and include all of the body parts. And then you do that up until people get out of high school where you're not having just this one day where you separate the boys and the girls and it's super awkward and everybody yeah. knows what's happening and everybody's weird about it because yeah. that contributes to this, like we don't get to talk about it except on special days. And it's like a disgruntled gym teacher. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's never somebody who wants to teach it or actually should be. <laughs> no, not at all. Lord, no. Yeah. Um, oh gosh, I'm losing my question that I had. Okay. So if we're talking about pleasure... Um, I know there are different types of orgasms that a woman could have, correct? Could correct. you like walk us through those orgasms? 
Most people do not orgasm just with vaginal penetration. Most people will require some kind of clitoral stimulation for orgasm. There are people who that, you know, their thing is just vaginal penetration and they're happy with that, but some people aren't. And so I think that it's pretty important to have that discussion with your partner so that you're both aware of what makes everybody in the relationship happy. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people can figure that out if they're having vaginal intercourse and they're not orgasming with penetration, then I think it's worth exploring on your own with probably a vibrational toy or something to that effect, if maybe you can find something that works better for you. Because nobody should leave sex and feel like they are disappointed with it. Uh, everybody should leave happy. <laughs> yes, absolutely. 100% <laughs> agreed. Um, obviously, too, I'm a big, huge proponent of lube. And, yes. you know, I think that Cardi coming out with WAP was wonderful because it's like a female pleasure-based song, but I didn't, I was like, oh gosh, is this going to bring so much insecurity to women? Like, oh, am I not a real woman if I'm not just like super WAPy? <laughs> <laughs> and um, so that, I was just listening to uh, Dax Shepard's podcast with a sex educator's name I can't remember. But um, they were just talking about how you can be super turned on and not get wet and you can be super wet and not turned on and, um, and that can even be a defense mechanism. So like, can you explain that? And then maybe a bit about female ejaculation because another question I had from my audience was, we know men come, do women actually come? Does anything actually come out? So, yeah. <laughs> so, so the... The lubrication topic, I think, is really, really important because I always, always recommend that people keep lube close by if they're having sex. Because just like you said, sometimes that correlates really well with how turned on you are, and sometimes it doesn't, and that's okay. But I, one thing it always correlates well with, I would say maybe almost always, but probably always, is how lubricated everything is is going to correlate with how happy you are with the sexual encounter because nobody likes to have that friction and pain when yeah. they're having sex. So I'm a big proponent of lubrication all the time. And if for some reason you're over lubricated because you had you were really wet that day, who cares? You're never <laughs> going to notice that. Just keep it there and demand that your partner have it available as well. Over lubricated. Um, I never even thought about that. <laughs> it's like right. Too much. It's not possible. So you, you can't <laughs> you can't use other lube and then run into a problem. So I think you, I think we should all be using lube all the time. Yeah. One of the important things with lube is that you need to be using a water-based lubricant if you're using condoms because oil-based lubricants will break down the integrity of the condom, the latex, and make them less likely to prevent pregnancy and STI. So just make sure if you're, you're utilizing lubrication with condoms that you find one that is water-based, which most of them that they sell over the counter are, but I would just confirm. Um, and then other things, yeah, things like, you know, people use coconut oil sometimes. I don't have a problem with that, but again, it's still going to decrease the integrity of your condom if it's oil-based. Um, okay. female ejaculation is uh, even still not something that we're sure on in the medical literature. Really? Um, okay. Go ahead. <laughs> a lot of people, um, very much have experience, personal experience with this. So you'd be hard pressed to say it's not a thing. But I, I think the important thing is that it's not something that is universally applicable to everybody. So if you're a person who has like visible ejaculation, like you would think of with a penis, then that's fine. I can't tell you all of the physiology behind it. It's probably just the skeins and various glands in the inside of the vagina. Um, and if you're not, then that's okay too. I think we should just normalize like whatever is your normal, if it's pleasurable, it's fine. And it's not pee. It's not pee. <laughs> right. Although you can have urine that comes out, but I, I, that's pretty rare because, you know, your body is a fight or flight system overall. And when you have adrenaline going, like most of the time there's adrenaline during intercourse, your body's not thinking about peeing. So I, I have a hard time accepting pee as female ejaculate. Yeah. 
I mean, I've heard the theory, and this is what I believe, is just that women have been so understudied and basically ignored in the medical field, and this is why we don't have an answer to this question yet. I would never disagree with that, especially <laughs> okay, female <yeah>. sexuality. <laughs> yeah, female sexuality in general. Um, and I love that you're a huge proponent of lube because I think it's so important to bring up, like, and even to normalize it. Like, I would encourage people to, like, have it as a staple thing and it's because it's not a point of shame it's not it's not like oh you're failing me or i'm failing you and therefore we have to like go on the other end of the room and pick out this shameful bottle of lube it's just like no this is totally fine this is a part of our routine we're good yeah i think a lot of people will find if they've been shy about using lube that it might dramatically change their sex life also mm, yeah that that sounds great good for those people to figure <laughs> that out <laughs> you know anything can affect um vaginal lubrication in general but birth control pills often make vaginal lubrication decrease and so with so many people being on birth control pills i think it's even more important to talk about that because it could be just something as simple as the way your hormones are from your birth control pills makes it harder to have natural lubrication. And that's not shameful, right? Like I just want to not have a baby and still have sex. So right. I can just get some extra lube from somewhere. Yeah, for sure. Um, can we talk about scent? I think that's a huge insecurity that so many women feel. Um, yeah. What is your perspective on it and, and how do we address it? And what is quote normal when it comes to scent? I don't know if you saw a video I recently did on Vagisil on my channel, but they've been marketing to teens a vaginal wash, which I find deplorable no. to, to do that. They say okay. it's a, it, they actually write in their marketing that it's for the external vagina, which just makes me want to rip my hair out because like, that's not a thing. Can you just say vulva if you're making a vulva wash? Oh, but God. in general, <laughs> I would say everybody has a, no has a normal scent and it shouldn't be anything that's overwhelming or bothersome to you. And other people don't notice it, except maybe, maybe in a sexual setting, which is generally kind of a pheromone turn on type thing. If you are, you know, a lot of questions I get are like, well, how should I wash my vulva? Like, what's the right thing? Should I, you know, get soaps or whatever? I am very much against these special soaps and this, you know, femme health aisle in the grocery store. I think a lot of these brands are at, at best, they are just capitalizing on insecurities and at worst, they are creating products which have potential for harm. Yeah. Most of them still have fragrances, which can be very irritating and cause contact dermatitis in some people. So I try to tell my patients, if you're using these things and they don't bother you, you just should know that they're not necessary. You can just use water and make sure you get between the labia majora and menorah, get everything cleaned off. Some people need to make sure they pull back the chloral hood just a little bit, make sure there's no smegma or anything that's getting gathered in there. And other than that, water's probably fine. If somebody feels like they really need soap, then I would encourage them to use a gentle fragrance-free soap like Cetaphil or one of these really gentle dermatology soaps. You don't need these fancy fragrance things. Your vulva is not supposed to smell like a dreamsicle. It's just supposed to not bother you. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so I'm doing that wrong because when I get in the shower, I just have a soap that's like organic and good for you and all of these things, but I just basically wash my whole body and then include my vulva in that process. But you are saying- If it's not could... bothering you, it's fine. So the, the thing is that some people are really sensitive to various soaps and I have people who have an increased frequency of UTI or increased frequency of different vaginal infections from those. And those are the people that this is the biggest deal in. If you have a soap you're using and you like it, it's not bothering you, it's fine. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay, feel better. <laughs> and I will say two missteps just so people know. Um, I was at a point in my life wiping my derriere with baby wipes and I was including my vulva in that and that ended up making my smell funky and not good and I realized later that it was because I was you know knocking off my pH balance and I wasn't you know I shouldn't have been doing that um yeah, yeah. and then those the other... wipes are big culprits 
regular so if someone needs a wipe so, so i know sometimes during your period especially people who wear pads will want like something wet to just clean everything off and if someone needs something like that i like water wipes or just which is like 99.9 percent .9 water it's what we use for our kids for diaper changes too because they don't have any extra ingredients in them and it, or just a washcloth with water on it okay that's a great solution and um, the second thing I did is I kept getting UTI after UTI after UTI. And I finally realized that I was using like super tampons and it was just too much. And it was like sucking up whatever. I mean, you can tell me what was happening, but it took, a, it took me, I think like two years to correlate these two things. So why would using like a tampon do that to you? I'm not sure unless maybe it was just kind of throwing the pH of everything off having a dry tampon sitting in there. Um, yeah. I do definitely encourage my patients to use the smallest tampon size that is helpful for their flow, um, which is going to be different for everyone. A lot of people think tampon sizes are like correlated to vaginal sizes, which is not true. It's just for how heavy your bleeding is. And, you know, sometimes UTIs can come from all kinds of different things, but certainly if your vaginal pH is off, you may notice that you have an increased frequency of UTI because they set really close to each other. Um, but, uh, you know, I have patients ask me about organic tampons versus regular also. And for the longest time, I thought, I, I mean, I don't know of any difference. And I still believe that no matter what kind of tampon you're using, if it's not bothering you, it's safe to use. But I personally prefer the organic ones because I feel like I get yeast infections less after them, whether that's like a self-fulfilling prophecy or just a bias that I have because I switched them. Who knows? There's no literature on that. I think use whatever tampon and pad makes sense for you but i am very much against fragrance so no fragrances please the vulva yeah. doesn't like to have fragrances <laughs> okay that's great that's key and just for the record i'm a diva cup and thanks underwear girl and i loved it because when i was using tampons i always i didn't realize how psychologically it would benefit me because i felt like the sensation afterwards of using tampons was kind of like shove something up there and make this stop and the diva cup makes me feel more like not to sound like a freaking california hippie but i am but like <laughs> it made me feel like ah oh, this is my feminine experience and i was able to even clock my blood flow because you take it out and you can kind of see you know it going away and kind of process how many days you have left and i love it and then it's not foolproof which is why i use the thanks underwear because you will your cup will overflow with sometimes <laughs> I'm a big fan of menstrual cups too. I, I am actually getting ready, hopefully soon, to launch maybe by this summer a sustainable period box that includes um, some of that and menstrual cup and some reusable pads and things like that. Oh, let me know. I will promote that for you. That sounds amazing. Okay. <laughs> Can I ask you one more question before I let you go? Do you have to go? No, no, you're good. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> um, I, I'm a open, I'm fine. Okay, great. Um, mother of four, working mother with a YouTube channel, just making sure. Um, let's talk about butt stuff. Because <laughs> okay. if we're talking about LGBTQ sex, obviously I feel like this is a very underaddressed topic, especially in religious spaces. And then of course you can be heterosexual and enjoy that anal penetration as well. So if someone wants to embark on that journey, um, I know a lot of even friends I've talked to had a lot of fear around it or a lot of stigma even like it's dirty or it makes me like slutty or whatever kind of narrative your head might have. How can we embark upon an experience like that with mutual like desire? Because I know oftentimes too, one partner will be pressuring it and the other one is not as keen. So what is your advice on that journey? <laughs> yeah. So as with all things, which I feel like I can't believe I haven't addressed this earlier, but consent, 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 right? So yes. with anything sexual, consent needs to be not just a yes, but an enthusiastic approval of whatever is happening. Amen. And after that point, I think having a good relationship with your partner, especially if you're new to anal sex is really, really important because there's a lot of communication that needs to happen with, especially the first few times that somebody has anal sex, you need to have 
mutual like relaxation and comfort. So if you're not comfortable with your partner, it's probably not going to work. It's probably going to be painful, Mm -hmm. especially if you're new to it. Lubrication is extremely important and taking it slow. It may be that you try it one or two times and you're like, this isn't working. I'm uncomfortable. It hurts. And that's fine. You, if you still desire that you can try it again, sometimes it takes a few times and you need to have kind of the right environment and setting for you to be comfortable. Um, aside from that, I think most people can work through that with good communication and mutual desire and lubrication. <laughs> That's all, yeah. you know. I feel like we should just title this podcast, <laughs> the lube episode. <laughs> yeah. um, and then everyone, <laughs> if, if the, one of the partners has a vagina, I, I do encourage my patients to try to avoid going from anal sex straight to vaginal sex, because we do see some alterations in microbiome and maybe an increased risk of infection or UTI if you do that. Oh, thank you for bringing that up. Yes, yes, yes. So even if you're wearing a condom, you take the condom off fresh when you're transferring between the two. Yeah, put on a new one, exactly. (laughs) Okay, great. Anal sex does not cause people to like have incontinence for bowel movements and things like that. Anal sex is safe and completely fine physically if both partners are interested in that. Yes, thank you. And the elasticity of your vagina, especially after childbirth and stuff, I'm not going to lie, I have had a harder time not peeing myself after having a baby. And that's been really frustrating. I've like been doing my Kegels, but sometimes it's just like, and then you do definitely get insecure because the whole narrative in our culture is like, you better be tight, you better be tightening up. And, you know, if you're having difficulty holding in your pee, I think even in my mind, I'm correlating it as like, I hope that I'm still like a pleasurable partner and it's not too like effed up down there. So another <laughs> point of like insecurity and overthinking for, for us women, can we talk about elasticity and, and healing and stuff? Yeah, most of the time the vagina goes back to completely the same as it was before. If you're having problems, you know, you're talking about urinary incontinence, which is completely unrelated to if someone feels like they have increased laxity in the vaginal walls. But both correlate them too. I'm like, if I'm being myself, my vagina is (laughs) big. Yeah, completely unrelated, but interestingly can be addressed because the muscles are the same for the vaginal wall and the urethra. They're not the same, but they're in the same vicinity by the same um, treatment, which is pelvic floor physical therapy. They won't use the same treatment for those two problems. And I would say most people after having a baby, even a 11 pound baby are going to be perfectly fine for intercourse after that. Your body is, you know, not to get, not to get all weird and miraculous, but your body was literally made for that. So it's okay. Your body will go back to normal. But if you feel like you're having problems, pelvic floor physical therapy, I I mean, I know I've said that a hundred times in this podcast, but I cannot talk highly enough of the expertise that those people do. I mean, they, they change lives. Like I, I love them. I think they're wonderful. Mm, that's awesome. I would love to see one of those or talk to one of those. And, and accessibility and, is such a bummer though, too, because it's not like you can just is. call your healthcare provider and be like, add my pelvic floor specialist. You're going to have to pay out of pocket, right? Well, insurance covers them sometimes. So I would see, you know, what your insurance plan covers as far as that. But usually if you can get a referral from your gynecologist, which I I can't imagine there wouldn't be some gynecologist if you just said, hey, I want to see a pelvic floor physical therapist for this problem that they would say no, but if if they are like, find a new one stat. (laughs) Um, But they, what they do is basically teach you how to use the muscles of the pelvic floor correctly. And all of us do Kegels, but most of us don't do them correctly. And then they also teach you how to kind of work out those muscles that help with continence and stress stress urinary incontinence after a baby is one of the most useful that and vaginismus is my favorite referral for pelvic floor physical therapy okay i'm gonna need one of those i stopped peeing my pants (laughs) (laughs) just just call your doctor or send a message in your your chart thing whoever delivered your baby and be like i have this problem i heard this gynecologist on a podcast say i need a therapist i want you to send me to one I a lot was, of them we can just make an appointment too. I, 
Okay. I'm not kidding. I love them. They are the best. Like they're my favorite people on the planet. Find one. Yeah, theme is pelvic floor and lube. This is exactly okay. Great. You're a huge fan of these things. I love it. Um, I when I was pregnant, like super pregnant, I was staying with my aunt, and I just remember I was like on the elevator, almost to her place. And I'm knocking on the door and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's going to happen. And she opens the door and I just like peed on her stuff. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'm so sorry. Everyone who's ever had a baby has a pee story. So <laughs> to write a passage. And then even when my water broke, I was like, is this pee? Did I just pee myself? So yes, all of these things. Well, I'll let you go into a second, but I, so my water broke and it was my fourth baby, my third pregnancy, because I have twins, but I've never gone into labor on my own because the twins were C-section. And then I was induced with my second one and I was laying in my bed and my water broke. And I was like, did I just pee in the bed? (laughs) And then I got up and I was like, okay, what would you tell your patient? You'd tell them, go in and get it checked out. And then I was thinking like, oh my God, I don't want to be the gynecologist who came into triage and was like, my water broke. And they're like, it's pee (laughs) because it can happen all the time. And I just thought I should know, but nobody knows it can happen. Oh, that's really comforting too, to hear you can be an expert and still be just like, a ship at sea, like, where am I going with this? That's exactly right. Yeah. And birth is crazy too. Everyone's story is so different that, yeah, that does not surprise me. Um, Do you have any final thoughts besides holding up a flag for lube and pelvic floor specialists? I I think that kind of covers the entire theme. Just (laughs) normalize. Everybody should be happy after sex and lube and pelvic floor physical therapy (laughs) amen great there we go there you have it okay so this has been (laughs) a really fun i loved it conversation with mama dr jones as i said please go follow her um i know we need sex education so badly and this is just such a phenomenal resource shame free fear free exactly as we need it um anything else to promote or anything I don't think so. You can just find me on all the places as Mama Dr. Jones. Okay, great. All right. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much. Bye. Before you go, beautiful people, I have a quick announcement. For those who are aware of the existing lawsuit between Angie and Isaac Tolpin and I, I wanted to inform you that after much deliberation and communication, we have agreed to put our differences aside and end the litigation between us. To be clear, I do not believe that We Did It Out of Love video accused the Tolpins of being involved in the alleged abuse of Stell Jacobson, no relation to the Tolpins, nor of physically abusing their own children, nor was it intended as such. Although I do not believe it was directly addressed, I also want to make clear that Isaac and Angie didn't know Stell, her family, or her siblings until Stell was an adult. I am incredibly grateful to everyone who contributed to my legal fees and supported me and Stell through this difficult process. We are glad that this is now behind us. Stell will be joining me on an upcoming podcast where we will discuss our experience over the last few months, how Stell is doing now, and how God is Gray will continue to be a safe space and a platform for those who want to speak out about religious injustice. And that's it. I love you all so much. God bless.